Good morning. Good to see you guys. If it's your first time here, my name is Ricardo. Um, I'm one of the pastors here. We've been going through the book of Acts, and we're going to continue to do such. So if you have a Bible, open it up, turn to Acts chapter 6. We're looking at verses 1 through 7. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and keep it raised high. We want you to have a copy of God's Word. And um, if you don't own one, just keep the one that the ushers are handing out to you as our gift uh, to you as you grow in an understanding and a knowledge of Jesus. So just kind of a quick recap. Um, the book of Acts in itself is a book that is a part of a two-part series. First part one is the Gospel of Luke, who was written by Luke. Part two is Acts. Both of them tell a story on how to shape, ultimately, God's people for a few things. One, how to live faithfully in the midst of opposition, meaning those who challenge their faith. And then number two, how to instruct God's people in such a way that they, they fulfill their role in God's big plan, his missional purpose, and redeeming all things. How the mission of God is continued by the Spirit through the work of Christ uh, through the church. And so we're able to see that. And we see Jesus calls them in the very beginning that they're going to be witnesses. And this witnessing is going to start in Jerusalem. It's going to go to Judea, and it's going to go to all Samaria. It's going to go all the way until he finally gets to Tempe, and then Jesus will come back. Okay, last part I added. Um, all the other part was to continue to go to the ends of the earth. And as the witnesses, that that was their identity. And what we've seen so far is the Spirit will be poured out um, God's people will respond, and there will be healings, and people coming to know Jesus, and then there's opposition and persecution. And then that was opposition from the outside, but then what Luke would write, because he's a realist, the church has never been perfect, he goes, there's issues going on in the church. And so we saw a couple of weeks ago about a couple named Ananias and Sapphira, and so that was conflict in the church. Then after that, again, the Spirit is poured out in a way that God's people are healing, and the gospel is being preached, and people are coming to know Jesus, and there's opposition from the outside. And then this week, again, now there's conflict from the inside. And so that's what we're going to be looking at uh, today in these first few verses um, in, the, in the book of Acts as we look at this particular conflict. Now, I will have to say this. By far, out of all the messages we've taught, this is probably the hardest and maybe continuing throughout Acts. And what I mean by that is what you continue to see if you're reading your Bible slowly is that the way that the mission of God is advancing, it's not necessarily just advancing by people being nice Christians. It's that they are radically pouring themselves out for the poor. From the very, very beginning continuously, it's God's people responding to the gospel, not just huddling together, but being radically generous and giving themselves and their time to the marginalized in their community. In fact, the way that this, even this section is bookend is it starts first with conflict that the widows who were the marginalized in that day were not being taken care of. Um, they respond to it through the gospel, and then at the very end, what we see is even priests are being added, which were part of the poor in that day as well, which we'll talk about that. And the reason why it's convicting is because many of us in this room that are Christians, when we think about how to live out our faith for the Lord and when it comes to the nature of sin, we're so used to looking at sins of commission. And sins of commissions are sins that we actually commit. And in a church like ours, young and so forth, it's like usually like sexual sin. The next sin is like sexual sin. It's like, oh, the next sin is sexual sin. Like, is there any other sins? You're like, no, right? And like, like, that, like that's ultimately it. And it's like, if I cannot sin in that way, then I'm doing okay. And the Bible's like, wait, 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 that, well, that's a part of it, but it's way bigger than that. And then the Bible also talks about sins of omission. That's when, when God calls you to do something, but you don't do it. And I think personally it's convicting for me is because as we continue to look at God's people as his church has started, that I'm not exactly sure if we are mirroring that church today. That if in our lives that we're passionate about ultimately serving the marginalized, which God calls us to ultimately to love our neighbor. You think about it, even in accountability groups, if you've been a part of such things, there's certain questions people ask you. Have you done this? Have you read your Bible? Have you sinned in this way? Sexually? Yeah, that's the only sin. Um, and, and then... 
But no one will ever ask, hey, what are you doing with your resources and your time and your energy to care for the least of these in your community? Like that never comes up. It's usually somebody else's job. But what we see here in this text, oftentimes it's taught as the church is getting bigger and they need to bring organization and systems and structures, which that's part of it. But underneath it is there are a cultural divide from an ethnicity side of things. There's a theological thing that needs to be dealt with, and ultimately the poor need to be served. It's not just a structural thing. That actually is a structure and system in place so that cultures are being one in Christ. Theologically, there's unity, and that when we are responding to the gospel, the, the, the marginalized in our community are heard and cared for. Amen? You say that, I haven't even said anything yet, so just, just pray with me, and we'll see. <laughs> Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we ask that you'd bring about the conviction in which we need as your people, Lord, um, that we would not bow down to the idolatry of autonomy, which says that we could be a law unto ourselves and look after ourselves. But instead, Lord, help us to live into the law of love in Christ, which calls us, Lord, to pick up our cross and to carry it in your name and your power and to care for the other. God, we ask that you would minister to us through your word, that you'd remove me, that we would see the cross and the power of the resurrection and live into that. Father, we thank you, uh, we praise you, in Christ's name, amen. So you guys have heard me say this before. Um, I feel like for me, I'm African-American, but I live on the hyphen. And what I mean by that is, to some people, you know, they'll say, oh, you're too black, which I don't know what that means. Uh, to some people, they'll say, you're not black enough. I'm like, I don't know what that is, right? And partly is, it's my upbringing, my upbringing. And I'm so thankful for my upbringing, and I do believe that when it comes to your ministry, your calling, oftentimes it's autobiographical. It's something that God has naturally allowed or caused in your life that puts you in a particular place. So I was born in Mississippi. I was, lived in Hattiesburg for two years, southern Mississippi. Uh, don't know much about Mississippi, and so if you're from the south, don't come up to me afterwards like, hey, let's talk about the south. I don't really know. Good food. Um, and so... My mom and my dad were, were separated at the time of my birth. My mom decided to reconcile things with my dad, and so she uprooted the family, my brother, my older sister. My older brother, my older sister, we moved to California. When we moved to California, my mom became a Christian, and we were part of a church living in the inner city um, in a back house. Now, when I, I say this, just for you to understand the context, my grandma had a house in the inner city, and my dad, um, who was with us at the time, built um, like a shack in the backyard. So we didn't have any running water or anything like that. And I'm not saying I was walking the school both ways in the snow backwards. I mean, that happened twice. But, not, but there, there, there was a sense where we didn't have running water and, and things like that. We'd have to go into the front house. We called it the big house. So that was kind of the context we were at. We were definitely poor when we think about for poor. But we didn't know it. It's just kind of the way we lived. Well, during that time, there were two drive-bys on our street in the same week. And my mom was like, we are not living here anymore. Um, she had dropped off somebody from her work that lived where the 210 freeway used to end in Laverne, looked like a nice place, looked to be good for school, and so she moved us out there when we got a little bit older. So here it was, I had this life in this, this very, um, I mean, predominantly white, but definitely more eclectic uh, suburb, but yet we did our church life and family life in L.A. And when I say church life, if some of you guys here grew up in the black church, you know what I mean by church life. Right? We joke around and say we were drug babies because we were always drugged to church. And church was on Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, Friday, Saturday, and all day Sunday. Right? All day Sunday. When my friends would be like, hey, let's play football, they'll pick up football game after church. And on Sunday, I said, I can't, I got church. And they'd say, what about after church? I'm like, there's no such thing as after church. Right? That's Monday morning. Right? That's what you're talking about right there. 
So, and, and just being able to understand the differences because now when we moved out of this context, when we moved into apartment, we moved into apartment complex and a pretty affluent area. It'd be like living in Chandler or something like that. There were some pockets, but for the most part, it was a pretty middle-class area. And we had an apartment where my, me and my brother and my sister all shared a room. Again, the three of us sharing a room was not a big deal. But now in that context, we were like the have-nots because everybody else, in my mind, the way I look at it as a kid, they had it all. Like, they had the two-story house, they had the Astro van, they had the dog, they had the pool, some of them. I mean, like, when you have the Astro van, it's like, dang, wow, right? And if you don't even know what an Astro van is, you're missing on life, right? And so, so, so now it's like a Suburban on 20-inch RAM screens and everything else. But back then, it was, just, it, was just a, it was just an Astro van. But in my community at church, which are my friends that we hung out with, we were, like, rich to them. Like, honestly, the fact that we had access to a swimming pool, that we would go swimming in our apartment complex, the fact that um, we were able to, I remember one time a guy coming over our house from the church, and my mom had made hot dogs, and I shared this before with you. I, she sent me to the store. I bought a 99-cent pack of six-pack of hot dogs. I came back from the store, like the 10-year-old me. My mom boiled them. We had 99-cent buns, right? So we had a $2 meal here, and I had a hot dog, and then I was like, Mom, can I get another hot dog? And then one of the other guys goes, you guys were able to get two? And I remember thinking like, here I'm complaining because I don't have what everybody has where I'm at. And my man over here is blown by the fact that we can get two hot dogs and not just one. The first time I went in my room and I cried. And I cried because it saddened me that there were people that were living like that. Now, I say all this, they're going, culturally, I've been aware. I've had no choice. Um, I've had no choice but to live in that hyphen. When God saved me, and I begin to read the Bible, and I begin to see this wasn't just my personal agenda. This was something God had raised me to, and probably a call, but not just for me, but me and particularly in his church. When we got married, my wife and I got married, on my side I had my buddy Josh, who was half white, half Mexican, who stood up next to me, and then another friend, Ryan, who we called White Ryan, because he's, he's white. And then you had... <laughs> David, who was Nigerian, and Tinku, who was Hindu, and Brandon, who was Indonesian, and Short Dog, who was Mexican. His real name was Josh, but he still goes by Short Dog. Deal double G. And so you had, you, you, you had this sense, and then when you come to the scripture, and if you read the scripture slowly, you actually begin to see God's heart in this. For ultimately the other, and ultimately the poor. That from Genesis all the way to Revelation, you see that even when God's people are chosen by God, it's that they've been blessed in order to be a blessing for others. There was never a sense that they would turn in on themselves, that it was always God's design to draw in the nations. And then what we see in the New Testament, when Jesus begins his preaching and teaching, especially in Luke's gospel, who are the people that he intentionally goes for? The other in their day. And they don't, they, they don't know how to reconcile that. Because he's with men and women and people that he should not be with. They said in that day, you should not be with lepers and definitely don't touch them. And what does, he, what does he do? He's with them and he touches them. And he transfers his healing to them. They said, you should not be with these sort of women. You, what would people think? And he goes, I didn't come because of what people thought. I came to redeem the world. And so he's with them. And then when you have an ax... Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. That is a promise of what God is going to do in and through us. And right now, in this particular section, is the very beginning of what we see the church could have gone wayward. Because there's cultural divide, and there's a lack of caring for the poor. 
and how the gospel brings those things together that the church may be unified racially, culturally, theologically, spiritually, and in doing so in Christ, never forget the marginalized and their community. And every community has a different set of people who are marginalized. In this particular case, it was the poor and primarily the widows, and we see how they address this uh, through the lens of the gospel. So if you're with me, we'll read slowly and teach slowly, but speak fastly um, through this particular text. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were, were being neglected and the daily distribution. So far, it seems like everybody thinks the early church was great. No, no, no. Remember two weeks ago, somebody died because they were lying about giving, right? Ha- has that happened here? No, we're doing okay, right? But what you have next now is that they said as the church grew, there were more and more people. They had, they had problems that were surfacing. So like last week, I don't have any points, but I can make up some as we go. Um, Point number one is more money, more problems. Okay. They have more people than they've had before, and they do have a system and a structure problem that there needs to be some organization. But before there has to be system and organization, we have to see it's not just a size thing. There's actually a cultural thing that's happening here. Like, and they say it. It's not just implicit. It's explicit. You have two different groups of people that are made up of the church. Right now, it's the Hellenists and it's the Hebrews. Both of them are Jewish, but culturally radically different. And so it says a complaint was raised by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So you, you, you've, um, like, you know, you can never talk about anybody's mama, right? You guys know that, right? All right. If you don't know that, you can never take, like, a yo mama joke. If it's the widows, it's like yo grandmama. And that's, like, way worse, right? And so now there's issues because grandmas are not being taken care of. Now, why is that a big deal? In this day and age, if you were a widow, you didn't have much. Meaning, if you didn't have a man in your life, you didn't have much. If you didn't have a father, if you didn't have a husband, if you didn't have a son. So they were some of the most vulnerable people. And so what happens, as we saw in Acts chapter 2, is the church was radically generous with their lives and their money. And they cared for those who were without in their community, without question. And so what happened now as they grew, something began to happen where the Hellenists were like, our widows are not being taken care of. However, the Hebrew widows are being taken care of. So what happened is they started the thing and they said, okay, hashtag Hellenist widows lives matter, right? And then all of a sudden the Hebrews were like, no, hashtag all widows lives matter, right? And so they're trying to figure out how to deal with this. Like, how are we going to deal with this? How do we reconcile this, right? They start marketing it. There were t-shirts, yarmulkes, the whole deal. People sell them on the side of the street. So first we got to stop back and go, what is this Hellenist, guys, that was a joke. Um, um, the, the Hellenists and the, the Hebrew. Hebrew, most of us know those were the Jewish people. We read about in Jerusalem, surrounding their lives around the temple. But there are a group of people called the the Diaspora. You'll read that throughout the scripture. They were Jewish people who did not live in Jerusalem, whose lives were not organized around the temple. But because of different things, they found themselves living in different parts of the world. And most of them were Hellenistic, Greek-cultured people, that their primary language was not Hebrew, but it was actually Greek. Their cultural was not Hebrew, but it was Greek. And so there were cultural differences here. Now, what you have now is an opportunity for the church to say, here's what's easiest. How about we have the Hebrews care about their people 
and the Hellenists care about their people, we can start two churches. It's totally okay. It's under the name of Jesus. It'd be all good. We can go forward. They could be First Baptist Church, and they could be Second Baptist Church, or whatever you want to call it. Eighth Baptist. Doesn't matter. Let's just keep the church going. But that's not what happens. It's not what happens. In fact, um, what happens next begins to show more of a kingdom economy than the economy of the world in which we live in. Martin Luther King Jr. says this. The most segregated hour in our country is Sunday morning at 10 a.m. Or 9 a.m., 11 a.m., and 5 p.m. in the evening service. <laughs> and you look at that and you go, oh, that was years ago. And it's like, it's kind of like that now. You know why? I don't think it's because people just don't like people. I don't think it's because everybody's racist. I think it's because we naturally tend towards the people who are like us. It's the easiest and the most natural things to do. Like, it is the, the, to be with people who will laugh at the jokes that you have, watch the same shows that you have. And when you find yourself not in that, you feel like another. When I first started going to church, uh, the pastor that I was sitting under would always make these Seinfeld references. I never watched Seinfeld. <laughs> he was like, did you ever watch the Seinfeld? No, not that one either. Now, if you talk about some Martin, I was down with you, right? Yes. Remember when Shanae came in? Yes. There's implications of the gospel all over that, right? And what happens is when you get people that, are, that, that we're, every time you do, like if you have an eclectic community, there's always going to be something that speaks to some people that misses somebody else. And so it's a lot easier to go, let me just be with the people who are kind of like me. And not, sometimes those are not intentional decisions. We naturally flow towards that. It is actually intentional to say, I'm going to walk on the other side of the track, the other side of the office, the other side of the room, etc. And then even when churches begin to reflect the diversity in their community, it's way easier to do what you guys are doing now, sitting in rows, than it is to sit in circles and around a table and share each other's stories. To be able to enter into other people's world, to be able to listen to them just to hear um, of who the marginalized are or who the other is in our particular community. And so ours is not completely like theirs, but I think about this in our community. If you are in part of a, a, a church like ours, this is not talking about any other church, ours. If you are a woman, is your voice heard as much? If you are older than 60, Older than 60. Think about what we do with our elderly here. Throughout the Bible, it is like, honor them, honor them, listen to them. To us, it's like, man, I got to go to grandma's house today, man. We got to hurry up. Hopefully, she's not talking about this crazy stuff again. And it's like, no, I don't think that that's what the scriptures say. I was, I was talking to an old mentor of mine this week, and he's definitely over 60. Um, and as a white male, he goes, I understand or starting to understand more of what it's like to be disabled, to be a minority or any group, because I'm not going to say I'm completely there, but I can understand that. I said, what do you mean? And he says, well, I'm no longer human in people's eyes anymore. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, I walk into a room, and it's like I'm, I'm, I, I'm not even there. It used to be when I had all my energy, when I had all my strength, when I had all my thoughts, my ideas, like that's it. But now I don't have those things, and it's kind of like I'm pushed to the margin, and people like me. We get together, and we complain about it all the time because it's not healthy, but <laughs> it's our people. And I thought, man, that makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense, especially if we're not living in the economy of the kingdom. Because the economy of this world is a very Darwinistic approach, which you take your weak and you push them to the edges, and you take your strong and you elevate them. But the economy of the kingdom is actually the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Is <laughs> actually you hear from the voices of those who are on the margin and you care for them, not in just the way that you can care for them, but you actually allow them to speak in and participate in your community. The elders here within this church refuse to have this divide. 
refuse to say, okay, we're just going to let the Hebrews do their thing, and we'll let the Hellenists do their thing, and, and their way, that way won't be no conflict. One day Jesus is going to come back, and that's when we reconcile. No, because they heard Jesus say, you will be my witnesses from Jerusalem to all Judea to all of Samaria. Meaning that, that means we're going to have to cross cultural boundaries with this gospel in such a way that we're going to have to learn the dialogue, the language, the culture, and so forth of the other and not feel guilty when they tell us their stories. There's a lady after this first service that came to me, and she goes, this is what I feel like as a mom with special need kids. I feel like when I start talking to people about my, my kids, they, they, they feel guilty. They, they make it about them. I'm like, oh, I know what that's like. And, and somehow we just couldn't listen to her and hear the plight of what it's like. And she goes, what I want to tell them is I actually have a privilege of having kids with special needs because there's things about God that I can see that they can't see. I just want to share it. But somehow you have to be in circles for that to happen. you got to actually be in community for that to happen. Like you just can't participate in a service and then peace out. Like you actually have to participate in each other's lives to be able to know each other. Amen? Okay, so what did they do? Remember, right now it's still hashtag, hashtag, how do we come together in Christ? Verse 2, and the 12, that is the apostles, they summoned the full number of disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and a bunch of other people that we cannot pronounce their names. Right? <laughs> Scriptures readers, they got it. You guys have already tried with me. I can barely say Galileans. And so I'm not going to say those Greek names. But what you have here is... What did the people with the most power or influence or authority do? Did they step in and say, listen, guys, just give them the food, right? Or did they go to the hell and say, listen, we've done this, the facts, the percentages. It shows that actually the lives here matter just as much as your lives over here. Let's just end all this right now. No. Did they say, no, you're a bigot, you're a big? No. They did something that we're not good at. They just listened. <laughs> they brought everybody in and said, hey, what's really going on? or in their language, was really good, right? And so they brought him in, they listened, and they said, okay, well, here's the thing. It is not right for us to give up preaching the word to serve tables. Now, that can sound like condescending, like we're preachers, our, 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 our job is way more important. That's not it. It literally means in language, it is not wise for the continuation of God's mission for us as our priority to stop preaching Jesus. The way that the two are going to continue to be one is if Jesus is preached, the way that the mission is going to go forth is Jesus is preached. That we cannot fudge on the word of God. That we can never say, because we were going to do these sort of things, we got to stop on the word of God. Because we cannot do that. However, from an organizational standpoint, there has to be other leaders that hear that God has already given. If the church is growing and there needs to be a structure, there needs to be other people from within the church to step up and ultimately lead. And so they said, here's what we think you should do. How about you guys choose seven people of good repute? character, people who are godly, people who are filled with the spirit, and then they're going to care for the least in our community. They're gonna, we're going we're gonna to love them. And so why don't you guys choose? And then they begin to choose. And we hear this and we go, oh, that's great. They chose people who were full of the spirit. How do you know if somebody's full of the spirit? Number one, you got to know them. And that means that there's actually not this sense of the community. Here's what they didn't do. They didn't show up to the synagogue on Sundays and then hear the word, get a little bit of worship, and as soon as the preaching was over, they left before communion and said, I got to go. There's a basketball game on later. I got to check it out. My bracket's getting all messed up, right? But there was a sense of going, there's going to be intentional fellowship. 
Like, we as Western individualistic people naturally want our space, and the gospel is saying, no, 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 no. When you stepped into the space of Christ, you stepped into the space of your brother and your sister. Like, that, that, like you are in part of the body of Christ. Like, sorry, no, not sorry, it's just the way it is. And that's how we participate in it. So they knew who the people who were godly around them. They said, oh, yeah, we know Stephen. He's godly. We know Philip. He's godly. We know those other people. We can't pronounce their names, but they're godly. Like, they're godly people. We want them to step up. And here's another thing that we see about the kingdom economy that we don't see in the world. And often when this text is taught, it's overlooked. It's like they, they had a structure. There was 12 apostles. They needed seven more. And they had seven. And it was like this weird pyramid scheme of discipleship. And it's like, no. Like, there was structure. But look at the names in whom they chose. They're all Greek names. So what you had is about 10 to, 10 to 20% of the people in this day that were part of the church were of the minority or the Hellenist. When the whole gathering of disciples got together and they said, who would be the best people full of the spirit with wisdom to care about this issue for truly all of the people? And they chose everybody from the smallest group of people. Again, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. First, you have the most powerful saying, we're giving away power and authority, not just tasks for people to do, but responsibility. Because what you'll see about these men later in the Gospel of Acts, they're not just serving and caring for those in need. They're preaching and they're teaching, and eventually Stephen, um, spoiler alert, he gets murdered next week. And so for, for the Gospel, come next week, see how it happens. Like, here, here's, 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 here's some people who care and deeply. But what you see is going, instead of them saying, hey, we've been doing this for a while, we've been in Jerusalem a lot longer, we've been at this thing better, we'll do it. They said, how about you do it? And they pick these men, and these men ultimately step up, and they're the ones who are able to lead it. It's how the kingdom works upside down. Here's what the church could have done here, and here's what the church has done. Historically, it has been in our country, even in our country, where when it comes to issues of justice or issues of the word, that we've separated in two different camps. So what we had is a group of people in our country in the late 1800s, early 1900s, were saying, we're not caring about the poor. Like, how could you read your Bible and not realize you need to care about the poor? And so they begin to care about physical needs. They begin to care about the needs of the people. They begin to give their money, their time, and their efforts, and so forth. And some of the best things came out of that, things like the Salvation Army, etc. But during that movement, what happened is they neglected the cross, the blood of Christ, the resurrection, the word of God, teachings, doctrines, etc. And so it became all about just doing what Jesus did, but not actually trusting ultimately in his life, death, and resurrection. And so you had what was called the social gospel movement. And that movement went on and on and on, and it, it had good elements of it, but it lost the power of the cross. And so then you have people going, whoa, whoa, whoa we can't do this. People like D.L. Moody, which Moody Bible Institute would have been a part of that, going, wait a minute, we got to get back to the fundamentals. Like, we got to talk about the death. We got to talk about the blood. We got to talk about the resurrection. Like, we have to, we can't neglect these things. Like, we, we have to get back to the fundamentals. Hence a movement called fundamentalism. And so you had these parties who were at odds with each other. And what would happen is this group was about serving the poor, um, about washing feet and renewing homes, etc. And this was like, no, 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 let's get together and let's teach the Bible, teach the Bible. If we teach the Bible, we'll get there. And both of them neglected that those two things should have never been separated in the first place. The church here does not say, here's what we want. The Hellenistic people, you guys can go do justice. We're going to just stick to the word. No, we will stick to the word, stick to the life of Christ, and the way that Christ is going to be known and made present and taught and lived is if we believe in this gospel and this gospel fleshes itself out that we care about the other. 
that we intentionally say, who are the least of these in our community? Who are the least, the last, the lost, the forgotten, the unheard? And our gospel says that's who we go to. Because at the heart of it, we see God himself leaving the comforts of heaven and putting himself in stress, ultimately living in the world and dying in order that we may receive all that he's given us, that we may be a light to the people around us, that we may extend the ministry of Jesus, that the good news of Christ is now embodied in the way that we love him and that we love each other and we love our neighbor. And that becomes good news to people as we live that out. Not separating and saying, we're going to be a word church. No, we're going to be a justice church. We're going to be a minister of the poor church. No, we're just going to be a doctrine church. It's just the church of Jesus Christ living in the gospel, caring for all people. Amen? Like, like that's, that, that's, yeah. that's easier said than it is done. Because all you have to do is step back and go, who are the Hellenists in my group? Right? Who are the Hellenists in my community? Who are the Hellenists? And, and I told you, Hellenists just meant Greek. Don't think I'm speaking in like some Northern California language or something like that. Hell of this, hell of that, none of that, right? Who are the people in my neighborhood? Who are the people in my church? Let's go even further. When's the last time someone's been in my house, my apartment, that is completely not like me? And not just to argue, but me for just to listen to where they're at. When's the last time someone of disability or who's not neurotypical, who has kids or people that are affected by it have been in my house? When's the last time I sat with somebody in my own community that's 30 plus years older than me and just listened without saying, but, 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 but? When's the last time I said to somebody else who politically is completely adverse to where I'm at and saying, not even just help me understand so I can try to convince you, let me just listen to you. Like, when, when, when is the last time that we have seen people um, and not just walk past them, but try to engage them and, and realize that that's actually our calling um, to love the people who are usually on the margins? Do those people actually get a voice? Do they have a voice? Do they get invited to the table, so to say? If, if, if we're being the church in response to the life of Christ, if we are truly living and following his as disciples— not only would there be oneness in that, because not that we lose our unique identities, but our identities are flourishing ultimately in the person and in the work of Christ better together than apart. Because we're missing something. When I, by ourselves, we're missing something. When I don't listen to my brother or my sister in Christ, that's completely different than me, then I'm ultimately just living in an echo chamber. And a lot of us as Christians, we live in echo chambers. We preach the Bible, we preach gospel, and so forth. We walk out, we get in our cars, and we leave. And there's a people around us that are dying, ultimately, for us to live out what Jesus has called us to live out, that they too may, by God's grace, be included into the fold. Amen? And it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. Because if people start coming to our church that are completely not like us, the bumper stickers will probably offend us. Sometimes the language may not be appropriate. Sometimes they won't wear this, the right things, or maybe they'll wear the things they were supposed to wear and it was way off. Uh, maybe for us, it's not even just outside of these six walls or whatever we have here. Maybe it's just walking in and not sitting in the same seat that I normally sit in, but actually sitting next to somebody else. There's a single mom that came to me after this service, and she says, every week I come here, Pastor, and every week I sit in the same place. And every week, no one says anything to me. She goes, and I was going to leave today. I'm like, I'm going to leave. This is not it. This is a problem. And she goes, and I heard you say to me, you be the solution. No, I never said that. <laughs> I 
I was about to tell the seagull mom, this is your fault. I didn't say that, right? They'd be putting that on me, right? My mom would kick my you-know-what if I said something like that, right? Boy, you don't remember? No, 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 I didn't say it. Something of the Spirit. She goes, now I want to be a greeter, and I want to just make sure that if anybody's sitting alone here, that they know that they're welcomed. Like, it's just relational. Everything we see here is less doctrinal and more of what it means to be Christ to the people around us. And what happens now? As these men are raised up, the hands, verse 6, are laid. They said they set them before the apostles. They prayed and they laid their hands on them. They commissioned them out to do the work of ministry. And verse 7 here, I love, it says, And the word of God continued to increase, meaning the gospel continued to go forth. Why? Because of their unity and their care for the poor. Not their buildings. Not their good preaching. Not their music was bomb today. None of that. It actually went forth because they loved each other deeply and they cared the marginalized, about the marginalized. Like, those things are not preferential. That's just godliness. And then it says this, And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and the, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And you get to the end, you're like, wait, the priests? Like, what was that? Like, the pastor's getting saved now? <laughs> Too late. I thought the priests would already get it. What, what Luke is describing here is the more research I did on this, which is mind-blowing, I didn't know this, is there was probably 18,000 priests at this moment, priests and Levites. And the bulk of them were lower-ranking priests, and they were poor. Like, they were considered the poor. And it was actually through the ministry of the church, this new community that was continued in Jesus, empowered by the Spirit, became good news to them because they were able to meet their tangible needs. That in serving and loving in the way that Christ had called them to, that many of them had left the understanding that the Messiah had not come and had begun to believe in the Messiah, ultimately Jesus as God's son. That they came to faith and obedience and they began to do likewise. Here, here, here's what we see for us as a church. We have to go out of our way to be with people not like us. And it can't be about winning the argument. It has to 100% be because we have been loved so much in Christ. Second thing is, in doing that, the other could be so many different types of people. We have to put ourselves in it. And you can't say, all right, I'm, I'm going to go to Ricardo because you know what? I need a black friend. Listen, you got to find somebody else, right? <laughs> and you got to do it. You have, we have to be able to do it at a cost to love Jesus, that people cannot be a project. They cannot be, oh, I'm supposed to do this. Pro-. No, they ha- it has to be a conviction born in us of the gospel of the scripture that says we are called to be these sorts of people. And it means that we will, there's probably some sort of loss that happens. I guarantee you there was something that the Hebrew culture had to lose in order that the Hellenistic culture would be concluded in. And I guarantee you there was something of the Hellenistic culture that they had to learn and embrace in order that their Hebrew brothers and sisters be in. And that ultimately began to look like how Christ had to lose the comforts of heaven to give himself. But in giving himself, he realized it was the joy that was set before him that he laid his life down. And he calls us now as a recipients of that grace that our biggest joy will be found in giving. That losing is when we actually will gain. But if we live in the economy of this world, we will seek comfort and safety every single time, and we will not fulfill the commission of God to go and tell people and disciple them in the name of Jesus Christ. And then we will cease to be the church that God's called us to be. So we have to honestly take a look at ourselves and saying, do I live this life for myself in Christ, or in Christ am I living for others? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word even when it's convicting, because it's convicting. 
But Father, we would naturally look after number one, our families at best, and, and miss out on, Lord, what you have for us in serving the people in our community. Miss out on it, Lord, because it's so easy for us to be with people, Lord, that kind of reflect us. But you've called us, Lord, to be people creating your image to reflect you. And Father, what we see in you, Lord, is full of love and hope for the world. Help us to believe deeply in the gospel that gives us joy and that satisfies us, that reaffirms us of our identity in Christ, Lord, as your witnesses to what you are doing and have done in Christ and will do in this world. God, I pray collectively, Father, that we would find ourselves not seeking the comforts in this world, but being satisfied in the comforts of the Spirit, Lord, and the safety that is in you as our refuge. But Father, that we would reach out to the people who are not like us, Lord, for the sake of unity. In the name of Christ and in the power of Christ, that your gospel and your kingdom may be advanced in this world. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. We have an opportunity to respond to God's word. We respond in a few ways, and Aaron and Nick will continue.